0: So we're going to begin in the book of Psalms, and we're going to start with Psalm 1 tonight. I want to do a little bit of an introductory, um, kind of an overview. I gave you a handout. I'm going to cover some of it, but not all of it, Um, on the handout. I'm I'm reading, I almost brought them in, but one I may bring in to kind of refer you, uh, if I'm reading. A, I'm reading about five different books on the Psalms, because to me there there's there's a lot to take from them, and they're, in some regards, there I I I see them as a lot like Ecclesiastes, <laughs> um, and they do have the glorious ending. Uh, in a, in Psalm 150, uh, of this incredible praise to the Lord, so. It's kind of like Ecclesiastes 12. But the, the Psalms are really interesting to me on a number of different ways. In one, they, um, they, they can vary in interpretation. And they, they actually did vary uh, a bit in interpretation. Um you know, even after they were written. And then Jesus comes along and kind of turns some of these psalms kind of on their head and really attaches to them messianic meanings. Although some of the psalms, and we'll get to them, right? When we get to them, I'll I'll uh, make note of it because there's, Uh, Some of the songs were already considered messianic at the time of Jesus. The Jews had had studied them. They had looked at them. um, And I I never really realized how much study that the Jews placed on the Psalms. Um, We have one book. The Book of Psalms, but actually there are five books. The Book of Psalms is divided into five books. Um, verse uh, and and so it's interesting because as they were written, they're they're kind of stand alone. The the the, the psalm themselves they kind of stand alone, and yet they have been compiled. And I'll get I'll talk on that a little bit more in a bit. They've been compiled. Uh, Together, kind of arranged together. Um, and so they, at times, they will hit on different themes. And, and the, the, the division for the uh, five books of the, of, of the Psalms is uh, 1 through 41 is book 1. It's, it's in your notes. Um, 42 through 72 is book 2. 73 through 89 is book 3. One, uh, 90 through 106 is book 4 and 107 through 150 is book five. Um, the Jews, at least some of them, also considered the Psalms the five books of David, which I found to be fascinating. They consider, Now, did, David did not write all of the Psalms. He wrote over half or about half, um, and there are even a few Psalms that are attributed to him That I I think it's around 138, but I don't remember the exact number, uh, where uh, it's a song of Babylon, but a psalm of David. Now, was David ever in Babylon? No. Um, But there's a reason for that. And so I'll back up just a touch. Um, They were organized in their present form that we see them today. Most scholars believe they were organized and put together in in their uh, in the form that they're in today uh, after the Jews returned from Babylon and came back into their homeland. And with uh, many of them were written prior to that, but they they were uh, the the Psalms were were various in various places, various fragments. In fact, there were several of writings like the Psalms that, for whatever reason, did not make the final cut. Now, I'll say it from the beginning, and as we get into this, I I believe that the Psalms are inspired uh, by God. And we got this this collection of 150 different uh, songs or Psalms uh, or pieces of poetry um, that were inspired by God. And they were organized, again, when the Jews, sometime when the Jews returned from Babylon back into, uh, into uh, Judah. Part of the thinking of naming them or referring to them as the five songs of David because that coincides with Jewish thinking of who was the other Jewish author who wrote five books? Moses, Torah. Five books of Torah, Pentateuch is another name for which refers to the five. And In their thinking, the Jews, in their thinking when they returned from captivity, their focus was more on this idea of of returning back to the glory days, if there really ever were much of any. I think the glory days of the kingdom, the glory days of the kingdom of Israel, when there were twelve tribes before the, the 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 nation divided. And you you see the glory of the king or the kingdom of Israel really in two reigns, right? David's and Solomon. But probably Solomon, because he built the temple and really got everything organized, but it was real, the really the real the uh, standard of the glory of Israel was David. And the fact that he was king, the fact that he was a prophet. But he was not a priest. Which, and he, he knew his place in that. Saul did not, if you remember. We won't, I won't go down that, that little trail. But Jesus comes along as a son of David. And he will and he is... He is and will be, okay, I think it's better said that way, king. He was the prophet and and is a prophet, but he was is also what? According to the book of Hebrews. He's a priest. Not only just a priest, but he is our high priest. And so um, bless you. So there was this, this sense of an expectation. Not that Moses was no longer important, because Psalm 1 talks about the law that we'll look at tonight. and The Hebrew word in Psalm 1 for law is, you guessed it, Torah. Okay? And, but there was this expectation, because think about what, what had happened to them. Seventy years earlier, they had their temple destroyed, or depending on, on how you want to date this, a little less than 70 years earlier, they had had their temple destroyed. They had lost all their kings. They had gone into exile. They were allowed to return home, but they returned home to basically a, a city that was in ruins. That's what the book of Nehemiah is all about. That's what the book later of Esther, excuse me, Ezra is all about. Um, And so um, it was this expectation of returning to the glory days of Israel which started to lay seed for an expectation for the glory days of Israel through the coming Messianic king. So a lot of it Again, it was already written, much of it, actually all of it, compiled together with that expectation. And that's why there are a few Psalms that they refer to as written by David, although you read the context and it's like, I don't think David wrote this, unless it was completely prophetic. Um, I don't think David wrote this. But it was also not uncommon In those days to assign writings to people who did not do the writing. Or for them to even take on names um, that were different than their own. Uh, In the early church, there was a writer named, he used the the writing name. We don't know his real name. He used the name Dionysius, referring to one of the disciples with Paul. Uh, Later on, it it almost became uh, like canon. His, his writings are quite good, actually. I tapped into them for my dissertation. Uh, but as time went on, they realized that this was not the same Dionysius, the Areopagite. That this was, they, they now call him pseudo-Dionysius, right? But that was kind of common in those days because they didn't know the author of some of these psalms, but they, would, they, they saw it written in the same spirit and... Uh, attitude of heart or condition of heart as David. But most of the songs that David is given credit for, I think he wrote. Um, so the title uh, of, of the book is, in the Hebrew, it's the telahim, uh, which is called the Book of Praises, which I find interesting because you have the Book of Praises, the Telehim, And that's translated in the Septuagint to the psalmos, which means a song sung to the accompaniment of a stringed instrument. That's what that word means in the Greek. Uh, Why wouldn't they come up with a book of praises out of the Greek instead of a song sung to the accompaniment of a stringed instrument? I have no idea either. (laughs) And... There was probably a linguistic equivalency. But there was also a bit, if you've read much of the Septuagint, and I thank Ken for encouraging me to read it, right? Um, If you've read much of the Septuagint, there is a little bit of liberty in the translation. Which is, again, that was common in those days. Actually, Even up until the time of of, uh, Calvin, it was common for a writer to take wholesale portions of another writer's work and put it in his work and not cite the writer. It was was commonly done. uh, And is found in a few places in the institutes of Calvin's writings. Um, So... The Greek called it a song sung to the accompaniment of stringed instruments or the psalmist. So when the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate, which was translated by um, Virgil. No, it wasn't Virgil. Um, His name just went in and out of my brain twice. I'm not going to try to retrieve it. He was the guy who actually baptized Constantine. Jerome, that's who it was. Uh, Jerome translated the, uh, uh, or made, uh, compiled the Vulgate which was called the psalterium, which means a stringed instrument. That sounds very Latin because it is, right? So when the, the King James Version came along and they adopted from the Vulgate, now they translated from other versions aside from the Vulgate, all right? Uh, particularly in the New Testament, they, they translated um, from a compilation of Greek manuscripts, which is now known as the Texas Receptus or as some call it the TR. Um, They basically translated Psalterium into Psalms, and that's what we have today. So, um, a lot of it is poetry. A lot of what we have in the Psalms is poetry, yet it's poetry that is very different than English poetry. A lot of English poetry is based on what? Rhymes and rhythm, right? Rhythm and rhyme. Um, I can only think of one poem right now, and I'm not going to recite it to you, but anyway, um, that really uh, is an example of both rhythm and rhyme. Um, I learned it in grade school, actually. But uh, uh, with, with Hebrews, they don't function, poetry is not a function of rhythm and rhyme as much as it is, uh, thoughts and ideas. And so Psalm 1 is not the best example of this. So I won't, we're going to look at it in, in a minute, but I'm not going to use it as an example for this. But the in, in, in a poetic writing that's Hebrew, it'll say something um, and then it'll, it'll turn around and say the same thing but in a different way. And it's called parallelism. And there's at least five or six. I'm not. I didn't. I'm not going to go that deep into this, although I was tempted. There's at least five or six different parallel categories to understand and to interpret um, Hebrew poetry. Um, in fact, we're not going to go nearly as deep as I, I did. A lot of. Re- I, I find it fascinating, but I. I don't know that. Um, it'll be of an incredible amount of use to us. But, uh, but it is poetry, but it's also, uh, much of it is, and we'll look in the terminology in just a second, you'll see that much of it was set to music. You could say that the book of Psalms may have been the church's first original hymnal, if you want to use that term. Um, the, the Psalms was definitely the church's, the early church's prayer book, because remember, in, in first century, in the first century church, how much of the New Testament had been written? Well, it depends on what time in the new uh, of the first century, but there, the primarily the scriptures that the early church used. Uh, was the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, including the book of Psalms. And in fact, Jesus, uh, a quick side trip, Jesus tells us, and he's talking to the two people on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. And I'll just, I'll just cut right to the, uh, to the verse I'm looking at, if I can find it. In verse 44 of Luke 24, Jesus says to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, that's Torah, and in the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And then he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Now, uh, some other translations might have instead of Psalms, they would have writings. The law, the prophets, and the writings. So it's either the law of prophets and writings of the law of prophets and psalms. And under psalms would be all of the wisdom literature. So Ecclesiastes would be there. Uh, Proverbs would be there. Lamentations, Song of Solomon, uh, even Job uh, would be classified as that. So um, it was an interesting thing because it was a prayer book for the early church and as we read through the psalms you'll notice that a lot of them are prayers i mean I, I, that's part of why hopefully we're not just doing a, a a mental intellectual exercise on sunday morning when we read through the psalms to me it's very purposeful uh, although we just, we we go we just we're going in a sequential order. Um, but it's, it's part of, of, a, of a community prayer. One of the things that one of the authors wrote about in considering the Psalms was that they are written responses to that which God has already spoken to the author. I think that was, to me, that fascinates me. They're written responses back to God to that which he's already spoken. Which means, who had the first word? God did. And, you, you know, do, does, does God speak to you? Now, I, I, it never f- fails to amaze me and when I ask that question, how many folks think that I'm actually talking about A literal audible hearing. And that's not what I'm talking about. But I hope God speaks. And the Psalms are an incredible. Way of responding. To what God has spoken into our lives. And. and um, So. With the Psalms you have. For instance I have. Well, let me me get it close to the book where you guys are located. Uh, Psalm 3, okay. It says, The Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom his son. Okay, you notice it's in smaller text or font. And it's not counted as verse 1. What that is, that's called a superscript or a super subscription. And there are different views on the superscripts. The prevailing view is that they were added later. That they were added. Now this is fascinating to me because they were one of the views and it's a pretty prevalent view is that they were added at the same time that the psalms were compiled. And in some of the psalm early early psalm books The way they were written, they did not have numbers or chapters, right? They did not have verse numbers. And for the scribe to separate these things out, that's why if you go through the Septuagint, the numbering is different. Because in the Septuagint, Psalm 9 and 10 are are one psalm. And then there are other psalms that are numbered differently than... Uh, than in the English version of the Bible um, it 's even there are some who believe Psalm one and two as was at one time one psalm uh, to me it doesn 't really matter, but it's uh, b- because psalm two psalm one doesn 't have one either, but Psalm two does not have a superscript or a superscription, and they are there. Primarily uh, as a result of scribes going back into the Old Testament record, particularly 2 Samuel, First and 2 Samuel, and in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. Not so much in the Chronicles because Chronicles was not written until after the Jews returned um, from Babylon. At least that's what I believe. 1 Kings was written prior to the exile. 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles Chronicles was written after the exile. If you ever do a reading on those, you'll see that there's a different perspective on how they are written. Um, And then Malachi and a couple other uh, come along later. Um, But it's commonly believed that the superscriptions, now some even say that, that there's an inspiration to them. That they are God breathed. I I I tend to lean toward that myself. Second uh, Timothy three sixteen is all Scripture is God breathed, and Paul is primarily talking about the Old Testament in that, in my opinion, because for for example, when he wrote that to Timothy, the Gospel of John probably had not been written. First, second, third John had not been written, and the book of Revelation had not been written. Um, but it's a common belief that the superscript, superscriptions were already in place at the time of Jesus. So the Psalms that we have now is essentially the English version of what Jesus worked with when he was here on earth. So um, pretty comfortable with all that. So then there's terms. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fly through these. Um, and probably mispronounce them. All of them are considered musical terms, and they're to the musicians essentially. Some of it is playing louder, playing, uh, so, uh, playing softer. Uh, the the hegion uh, is a, and, and the and the thing is, if you notice, they're given to us in the Hebrew because they lost their translation fairly quickly, or there was not a good consensus on the translation, uh, which is, to me, is kind of a problem. But nonetheless, a Higion was muted music. That is, when they, when they dial down the volume. Uh, the masco, um it has various meanings. Um, one is it's a form of a meditative song. Or it's a cue for the instruments to pick up volume and just to play along while the people are rethinking what they have just sang or sung. Uh, the miktum uh, it, it's a, could be a psalm of expiation or covering. Uh, the the uh, That word in, in some of the ancient Hebrew refers to this idea of covering. Uh, although there's... There's not a consensus in that either. Then the shigeon, uh, which means frenzied or emotional, I think it, that really refers to picking up the pace of the song or, or something that is sung um, quickly, rapidly. Now, if you have studied music at all, you will know that, it, and I'm talking formally studying music with you know notes and uh, scores, uh, all these uh, wor- these types of words are in music today. They're printed in the in the scores. Yes, like forte means fast, uh, or um, and, and they're all in Italian or Latin, one of the two. But and I am thinking of a few others, but I will probably mess them up. But but so this was uh, th- the notation to the instrumentalists. Um, on how fast, how slow, how loud, how all of that. Uh, whether you play something, staccato means something very short and very quick. Um, and then there's the word selah, which I find interesting because uh, it, it, it could also be translated forte, which means loud, um, in a musical direction, but it also is a pause. So you'd have to look to your conductor. And and I I was in. I played in in college level um, in a brass ensemble, and we had to look to our professor, who was our conductor, to kind of decide exactly where he wanted to go on some of the stuff. Uh, Played, you know, I I played at the college, so we actually went on tour for, you know, you know, try to get more students and that kind of a thing. Um, But it also means to lift up, to exalt, or to make prominent. But in, it's also not only a musical mark, but it's a liturgical mark. Perhaps either raise your hands in prayer. Uh, although I couldn't find it, I was taught time and time again that the, the phrase means stop and think about it. In other words, to give it some thought, that to which you've just read. Um, <coughs> or even lifting up your eyes to repeat the verse that you've sang. So those are just... just a. We only got about 25 minutes left. Um, So I want to get through Psalm 6. I'm sorry, 1. I'm in John 6 in my notes right here, so that's part of the problem. But... Cancel. So a lot more could be said about the Psalms. um, And... As we go, I'll probably just keep throwing some of these things out to you. Um, psalms are quoted over 400 times in the New Testament. Jesus referred to them uh, and 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 used them. And, again, um, it's interesting how they are compiled. So uh, David writes at least 73 of these psalms, if not more. Um, and... So they were all fairly similar. A little bit of variation. How happy was with the Christian standard, Christian standard in the NIV and also the ESV. I checked uses the term wicked. Uh, the Brian one was it ungodly or wicked in that Brian for uh, verse five and six? He made you go back, didn't I? Uh, well, you can make it up. I don't, yeah, anyway, and of course the uh, King James and the New King James almost identical. Uh, Talked about the ungodly. Uh, Did you find it? Word. um, Either ungodly or wicked in verse 5 and in verse 6. Okay, it's wicked. Verse 6, wicked or ungodly? Okay. Um, Bill's version? No, that's uh, Bonnie's. Bill has a new King James, and Cindy has an ESV. I have the ESV in front of me, but it's, it's pretty much the same. Okay, so what, what's interesting, in, in light of the idea of this being compiled with, after the, the exile and compiled by Jewish scribes that were looking for the kingdom... And this has been considered, uh, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 has been considered, um, um, the word I just went in and out of my brain twice, the, it's like the, the prelude to the rest of the book. Uh, kind of like, um, John 1, 1 through 18 is a prelude for the entire book of John, um, but what is the, the first thing you have here is this pronouncement of blessing. And, and uh, really it's giving us also, and, and I don't want to depart from the idea of blessing, I'll get back to it. But it's really a definition of two ways. So it's, it's very clear cut and dry. There's there's not a lot of fudging here. There's not a lot of headroom here, um, but it is the way of uh, blessing or the way of judgment, and the one who chooses the way of blessing is the one who ble- is blessed. Now this, oh how happy, right? Um, that's a good translation. From the the, uh, the Hebrew word here uh, from Asare, uh, this idea of being blessed, it translates also I didn't write down the Greek word, but it translates pretty uh, evenly into the Greek with the idea of blessed is also being happy uh, and, and and when I read this. Uh, my mind goes to the Beatitudes. Uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake, for they will be filled. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I'm getting them out of order already, of course. but um, and And this pronouncement of a blessing, because it does have to do with a happiness, and it is essentially framing generally the place of a person who um, is following after the will of God. Now, this word in the Hebrew, going back to it, it, this idea of being blessed, it has to do with you doing something. I find that to be fascinating. Fascinating. It's not just simply something that God bestows upon you, but it has to do with you actively being involved in something. Normally, it's something positive. But here in the Hebrew, in this psalm, he flips it to avoiding the negative because the emphasis is on the negative. Uh, Happy is the person who does not. So he's, you know, he's flipping this. And incidentally, I believe that the belief is that David wrote this, but it's not even really accredited to him. But um, blessed is the person who does not do this. So it's, what you have here is the question, and it goes back to that, that theologian, uh, Bob Dylan, Right, when he wrote, "You got to serve somebody." It may be the devil, or it may be the Lord. But you remember that album, "Long Train come, Coming." Anyway, um, but you got to serve somebody, right? And that—that's what, kind of what this is saying. But it—but it has to do with counsel. Who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly? Do um, you? you is it wicked? Do you guys have wicked on that? Probably? Okay. Uh, who does not? Yeah, it's so ungodly in, in the King James, right? Um, but who walks not. In other words, their lifestyle is not shaped by the counsel of an ungodly person. Now think about that a minute. And think about who do you listen to? Who do you read? Who do you watch on the tube? Um, We all are exposed to some, I'll use ungodly because it's a little bit softer than wicked, but we're all exposed to some form of ungodliness or another, some way, shape, or form. I, I remember, and this was 20... Gosh, it was almost 25 years ago, the ungodliness that I was exposed to on the billboards whenever I drove to my office, which was in San Francisco. And and I I couldn't believe some of the, the sick stuff that was on billboards, Yeah. Yeah. Big, big billboard. And that, w- the, that was the better ones. You know, there were some really weird ones um, that I'm not going to tell you about. How's that? <laughs> um, so we're all exposed to some way. But the counsel of the ungodly, uh, you hear it, But then you walk in it. And what he's saying is that the person is blessed when he is discerning and makes a distinction and, if need be, isolate themselves, if, ha- if need be, from the counsel of certain people. You know, I, I think when Jesus talked about not casting your pearls before swine, I think that has an incredible vast uh, applications. And there are some people I will interact with, talk with, whatever, uh, but I, I don't want to lay my stuff out there for them. Because I, because they immediately want to give me advice, which I don't really want to hear. You, you guys know, you guys all have people like that in your life, right? They immediately want to give you advice, and it's usually not good advice, and 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 it, it it just really becomes a waste of time. And you know, often I'm just standing there, very polite, you know, and sometimes I just get very impolite. But anyway, um, not me, right? <laughs> right? But um. But. This isn't so much hearing it, but hearing it and living it out. And so, the person who does not live out the counsel of the ungodly, and that's kind of a heading for these, the other two things that we're going to see here. This is somewhat of a parallel construction. Counsel of the ungodly, path of sinners, seat of the scornful. But notice it's progressive. One of the translations, I'm getting ahead of myself again, but that's all right. One of the translations had mocker. Was that yours, Mary? Christian Standard? Didn't say scornful, it said the mockers. Um, Yeah. Right, okay. So we're blessed if we don't enter into these things we're blessed if we do not adhere and live out according to someone's counsel which tells you what two things one you need to be careful who you seek advice from and you need to be discerning even from those whom you seek advice from Yeah, it's progressive. You go from walking, standing, which means that you are a part of, because I can, I can get ungodly advice and then walk away from it and go live it out all by myself, right? We can. People can do that, right? But then when you stand in the path of sinners, it's, it's as if you have made a move to be a part of them. And then thirdly, the sitting in the seat of the scornful, or sitting in the seat of mockers, um, you're a full participant in their ungodliness. Right. Right. So so it's it's Right. That's what I was saying. is one thing, but but it's. I think this is giving us a degree where yes you heard the advice not only hear it you go out and live it but all of a sudden now this is your new clan these are your new people and then all of a sudden you become the evil advice giver yourself or in this case it's really not giving advice but it's mocking scornful sarcasm it's these type of things Um, and the thing is, is that uh, God's intention, Genesis chapter 128, was to bless man. And be fruitful in what? Multiply. And it was only, um, really only after sin had entered the world um, that we find the word curse. We don't find that until Genesis 3, 14 through 19. Where the word curse finally comes into play. Um. In the New Testament, Jesus, and I referred to Jesus in the um, Sermon on the Mount, but Paul, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, says that the believer in Christ is blessed with all spiritual blessings. So, if we walk, sit, excuse me, if we walk, stand, or sit, we do so... In a negative sense. Okay, if we walk, stand, or sit in a negative sense, we do so because of our own volition. And we do so because of our lack of discernment. So, to me, this is it's just me, I guess. But this this first verse has free will. This Actually, this whole psalm has free will written all over it. So, because what I believe the Holy Spirit is telling us in verse 1 is that there is an alternative to the counsel of the ungodly. There is an alternative to the path of sinners, and there is an alternative to the seat of the scornful. Um, This word walk in the Hebrew, um, it really refers to travel under the advice or plan or uh, of. Travel under the advice or plan of. I've told you guys this before. AAA, remember, remember roadmaps? You guys remember roadmaps, don't you? And, and tri- my parents planned to trip back by car to Massachusetts. And... They got all the roadmaps, and they they actually had highlighters back then. That really amazed me. You you know what I'm talking about, right? Because they highlighted the route, the best route. So that was, my parents were driving, not walking, in the council of AAA, that's kind of what this word refers to. Now, again, I've told you the story when my mom took, my dad's, we had three, uh, one of those station wagons with the fold down rear seat. You guys remember those? Face backwards. Brian, you were, okay. You had a big family. I'm sure you had two of those, right? Okay. But um, my dad's in the back seat by himself with his feet up. My mom is driving and she takes the wrong turn. We're probably an hour plus out of our way. And my dad just blew a gasket, which was normal. I mean, that's what he did best. But anyway, um, because my mom no longer drove in the council of AAA. She missed a turn somewhere. And we were still, we were heading the wrong direction. Um, but that's what this word essentially means uh, as far as walking. Um, and to stand on the path of sinners means to be present in their way or their journey. So see, that's why it's progressive. And it really refers to this idea of missing the mark, which is, the Greek word picks up the idea from the Greek word harmakia, which we get, what? Sin. And to sit in the seat of the scornful means essentially to ridicule that which is sacred. And it's... I mean, I, I've, heard it, I've heard it in this room. Um, I've done it myself. I don't think in this room. But anyway, um, where I've listened to people criticize other parts of the body of Christ. Now, there are a whole lot of the body of Christ that are doing things that I don't want to do. All right? I, don't, I don't want to do any of that stuff. All right, But I also just want to be careful that I'm not sitting in the seat of the scornful and ridiculing what might actually be sacred. Um, so